So I did this display to like be an asshole. I can't believe I, I, was like, I was like a child. And I did it and he looked at me and said, awesome, thank you. That was brilliant. And I was like, what? You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Nick Stuccio. Nick is the president and producing director of Fringe Arts and the creator of the Philadelphia Fringe Festival, an annual citywide celebration of thought-provoking progressive performance arts. In this episode, you'll hear how Nick started his performance career as a ballet dancer and how, despite the fact that he didn't take ballet seriously until he was 18, he quickly found himself thrust into a dance career. And the lead dancer, I remember this vividly many years ago, he pulled the crap out of his thigh muscle and he he hobbled off stage. And they looked around the room and they were like, who understudied Jim? And I was like, He'll share the moment his perspective on performance was totally turned upside down and how he went from valuing tradition and technique to becoming obsessed with contemporary art. I had this like conversion moment. I was like, oh, I get it. And I went from being the jerk in the room to being like, everybody, this is the best art anyone could ever do. And you'll hear the story of how Fringe Arts went from a small weekend of performances in 1997 to one of Philadelphia's biggest and most well-known art organizations. Like I I hear the naysayers, maybe I agree with them, but wait a minute, this is actually really cool. The needle went from, oh, I hate it to, no, it's awesome. Like right in the course of that one show. All this and more about Nick Stuccio, Fringe Arts, and one of Philly's biggest festivals, right now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. As you may have guessed from the previews, there's a little bit of cursing in this episode. So Nick Stuccio wasn't always the performance aficionado he is today. As a kid growing up, he was more into sports than anything else. In fact, as the little brother of three serious ballerinas, he was actively anti-art. I remember basically like Damien in The Omen having the, you know, dragging him to church. It was like dragging me into the theater to making me sit and watch my sister's recitals. I was like, no, please. <laughs> Can, may I bring a ball? Um, it's funny because I ended up as a ballet dancer. Yeah. Um, but no, I really had an aversion to anything musical or theatrical or, or art related as a kid. So if you would have told that kid that was getting dragged into the shows that he would eventually go on to be in ballet, how would he react? <laughs> um, I think he would uh, run screaming and say, <laughs> why is the crazy weird man talking to me? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think uh, I wouldn't have believed it. Yeah. So then how did it happen? Uh, In a word, girls. So I went to Skidmore College to become a doctor, like my dad, like my sister, like my uncles. And I I was a very sporty guy. I played a lot of sports in high school. I was going to make a decision whether or not to play sports in college. And I decided not to. I wasn't that good, by the way. So the decision was easy, but I missed it. I missed that, that fall, that fall sport. I went to Skidmore. It was great. I love Skidmore College. I went to, went to Saratoga Springs, New York. And one of my first days on campus, I was wandering around the field house looking for a ball, looking for a basket, you know, to shoot, uh, shoot some hoops. And on the way to the field house happened to be the dance studios with a dance class happening uh, and a room full of, I don't know, 50 co-eds, man. There were <laughs> 50 girls in there. And of course it was ballet because it was only girls. And um, I stopped to watch, of course, as you do when you're 18 and um, girl crazy. 
And I stood at the doorway, peeked my head in and was like, damn, like this. And um, the teacher saw me there for an inordinate amount of time. Too long, probably. (laughs) Too long. It's like, and I thought he was going to toss me out, but he's like, he came over and started talking to me. He said, you know, what do you think? What do you think? This is beautiful. What What they're doing is beautiful. And I was like, oh, it is certainly. And he was like, you know, we're always looking for guys. As you can see, there's no guys. We, we always would love welcome a, a male into the ballet studio. And I was like, you know, I would try this. I would give this a, I should back up. I should back up. There's a little, there's a little preamble to this story. So back in high school, as, as I've said, I was this, you know, girl, crazy, sporty guy, a, a student whose name is Joe Torcella, who is our current state treasurer. He and I went to high school together. And we went to this, this high school that's kind of, it was a private school, it was kind of a college prep school, kind of stodgy. Um, and they had a theater department, which of course the, the plays there were cast only by the professors. But Joe decided, well, why shouldn't the student direct a play? Which was never done, I think, before or since, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so he mounted a production of, of Neil Simon's The Good Doctor. Why well, he chose that, I don't know. And so um, he held auditions for his production, <laughs> Good Doctor. I believe I was the only male who auditioned for this. Uh, why? Because here is this student who was being, had this independent spirit and was gonna uh, you know, turn it upside down and direct a play. I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. I don't know who this guy is, but I'm trying out. So I did, I, I, he, he cast me as the lead, but I honestly think I was the only guy who did. <laughs> By default. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I loved it. It was a great process. I just sort of fell in love with it. And then this lark. And this was in high school. This was in high school. So I did that play. We did that play and I loved it. And then came another uh, regular school play, which was Tartuffe. And it was uh, some kind of 18th century era setting. So there was court, there was court scenes. And the director, the teacher, brought in this person to teach us some court dances, also known as ballet. And so I, was, I got cast in this show. And I, we, that person came and taught us some of these court dances and I kind of liked them. It's like, hey, this is kind of formal, kind of fun. It was dancing. And even the teacher was like, you know, you're kind of good at this. It's, you know, it seems like you have a good feel for this. That I filed away. The, the lure certainly was the ballerinas, but second was this idea like, you know, I've done this little court dance. I kind of want to give this a try. And I did, I came back the next day. He told me the things I needed, which was some sweatpants and some socks to start. And this thing called a dance belt, which I was like, pardon me, a dance belt? What does that mean? Well, it, a dance belt is this, uh, it's, it's what males wear to support their, you know, oh, their, yes. their junk, man. And, right. um, yeah. and it's not a, a comfortable device. It's kind of, um, <laughs> I'm just, I've just met you and I'm describing a dance belt. Um, Welcome to the show. But people need to know, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> it's, it is, uh, the, the, the support strap goes in your butt crack, man, because the buttock is an important aesthetic part of the form. So it has to be unencumbered by right. any kind of thing. So, and I was like, I was not pleased about that. And this was your first impression. It was like, you're going to do this? Okay, go get this belt. Yeah. And that didn't turn you away. Ballet suited me perfectly. Um, a, because it's, it's very technical. It's enormously technical. I'm a big tennis player now, like ballet or something like tennis. It's an endless pursuit for perfection, technically. And it's also regimented. There are certain exercises. It's all about form. It's all about technique. That is something that suited me. And it's also, um, there's drama in it. It was an art. It was interpretation. And I like that as well. 
And also, again, uh, you dance with beautiful ladies yeah. with wearing not a lot of clothes. So yeah. <laughs> all of that as an 18-year-old was all good. was all good. Um, and I really fell in love with it. So um, as I got more into the studio and, and at Skidmore College, there were dance classes at the beginning of 8 o'clock in the morning till you know, midnight. And I was taking introduction to ballet, and I would go audit like advanced ballet five, you know, and I would be this disaster guy flopping around in the back, <laughs> taking people's legs out. Um, <laughs> but I was going to everything I could. So I was going to do my bio lab, my chem lab, running back to the dance studio. I was like, you know, karate kid, wax on, wax off. Um, so at what point did that become your main pursuit? And did you stop going after being a doctor? The deal I cut with my pops, who was paying for school was, <laughs> get a degree in anything other than dance, and I'll consider paying for it. And I did, and I do like, I still like a, a science. So we, we got to this sort of stasis where um, I stayed with my major in biology, which I have a degree in. Okay. Um, and, and I realized I could do that and take a, a zillion ballet classes yeah. and study and then do the sh school shows that we had, the showcases, and I did all that. Um, I didn't really know where that was gonna lead. I hadn't made a decision. And I guess kind of my senior year in college, it came down to, are you gonna take your medcats? and apply to medical school? Or are you gonna audition for a ballet company? <laughs> Which one of those two things is in your future? Um, it was clear by the time really I was a senior, like I really wanted to give this ballet thing a try. And, and, and as I told my father and anybody else who asked me, I didn't really have a choice. This thing had me by the throat. Like I, you will be, a, you will try to be a ballet dancer. Maybe that a, a year before I graduated, we had a guest teacher come to Skidmore. He was this sort of very direct British um, ballet teacher for a semester came and I was still a kind of a mess. You know, I mean, it's hard. This is hard to learn to be a dancer in such a short time. And he saw me and he saw the, the dead seriousness and the passion I had for this, but also knew that I had a hell of an uphill battle to ever make it professionally given how I started 18 years old. Right. And he took me aside one day and said, um, you know, Nick, I, I could see you really want to do this, but listen, man, you're really terrible at this. You, <laughs> really are not have no chance so good luck yeah <laughs> but well, my thanks. advice is like i'll cast you and all on these shows but really man you know think about something else you start studying for the mcats right and um i got to know this guy later but i was faced with faced with two decisions here which is um one like this is an expert he knows what he's talking about or two fuck you yeah. like i'm, I'm yeah. doing this anyway and really uh, because i was so deep into it and so in love with it I, I really, maybe I flashed for a minute, like, hmm, he really thinks I'm terrible. Um, but I was like, I don't care. So I auditioned for the School of Pennsylvania Ballet, which was one of the, you know, it's one of the preeminent dance companies in the country. And again, being male, you have an enormous advantage. I mean, you, you know, the, the female dancers were far better than me, certainly. And most of the guys too, but I was really determined. And, you know, I fit in a lot of the costumes. Yeah. You know, like, okay. <laughs> and I got a, I got a, a scholarship. And um, at the time, I, I, my life has got a series of like dumb luck. When I arrived at the School of Pennsylvania Ballet, the company had just fired the director and they brought in this new director, I'm named Ricky Weiss from New York City Ballet. And as directors do, um, he wanted his own dancers. He wanted to rebuild the company in his own image. And he basically fired 75% of the dancers and like 90% of the men in the company wow. he, he got rid of as they do to get their own style, their own, you know, their own kinds of dancers. But there was a season planned and all of a sudden he's looking around going, 
oh shit, I need to put people in these costumes and put them on stage. So they like dug deep and let, let's who, see who we have in the school here. <laughs> like this guy. He fits. Literally, I remember going, the costume lady's like, this guy fits in the costume. Like, you're on, dude. You see it? And, and, and I was on stage in two months. I was in a, wow. a show, <laughs> ballet. What went through your mind when, when you were cast there and you were like, oh my God. Well, because I was, I was you know, 22 years old, um, utter joy. And also, well, this, this, this story gets better, actually. The first show that we, the company did was um, Midsummer Night's Dream. It's a, it's a George Balanchine work. It's a very sophisticated, the second act, it's a very technical dance. And, and I, I was thrilled and terrified, certainly. Right. Um, but mostly, like, I was naive and, like, I love to dance. I'm going to put me out there. I'm ready to go. So the show came, and I was, and I was cast in some minor role, like, basically part of the scenery you know holding a spear in the back and smiling that was my job but there weren't a lot of male dancers and so those of us in the school were understudying some of the other roles thinking just just for your own benefit just learn the dance yeah, yeah. you're never gonna go on stage um, but just learn the dance is good for you opening night the the <laughs> some little kid dropped something a prop on stage and the lead dancer i remember this vividly many years ago he saw it on stage and he kicked it off stage in the middle of a step, and, and he awkwardly pulled the crap out of his, uh, out of his thigh muscle, and he, he hobbled off stage. So they had to put a core dancer, the second act, to replace him. And so they had to replace this core dancer in this really technical, sophisticated group dance. And they looked around the room and they were like, who, who understudied, you know, Jim? And I was like, oh shit. That was me, man. <laughs> I understudied. So intermission, right before this big, I had never, I didn't even considered going on. Um, all of a sudden, I'm standing in the costume. Oh my gosh. 10 minutes before, the second, this is at the Man Music Center, by the way. What? My partner was a, a great dancer, wonderful person named Kelly Kaiser. And she thought it was hysterical. She had been there for years and she was like giddy with delight that this young, silly boy was her partner in this... And she was laughing and telling me what to do. Like, pick me up, yep. carry me there, put me down, <laughs> stop, hold me up, spin me around. She was thought it was hysterical. Thank God I had her. Yeah. Because mostly those girls would be like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. You're such an idiot. You should have, anyway. And because there was absolutely no pressure on me because I was doing, in a way, that is a great opportunity for me, but a favor, yeah. you know, um, I, I got through it. I got through it somehow. I performed until 95, and then I retired from the stage, as they say. Fast forward to the mid, mid 90s when the AIDS epidemic hits, sweeps the, the world, and particularly hits the arts community so hard. And it certainly hit Philadelphia hard. And um, uh, there were colleagues that we knew in our beautiful, closed community of ballet companies who were dying around the country, especially in New York. And so we wanted to do something about it, the dancers of the Pennsylvania Ballet. So a group of us got together and thought we should throw a fundraiser and raise money for an AIDS cause. And that's called Shut Up and Dance. And we started that, I think the first year was 93 or 94. The guy I told you about who kicked the prop off stage, it was a great dancer, a principal dancer for many years. His name was Eddie Myers, a great dancer in the history of Pennsylvania Ballet. He retired from dancing. We had a big party for him. I, lo I loved him. He taught me a lot. Eddie got the, uh, the artistic director of a ballet company in Memphis, some, some ballet company, and he got AIDS and got sick and died 
before he, maybe he took the job and was there for three months and died. And it really leveled us all. Um, so that was part inspiration. And we, so we did this fundraiser um, called Shut Up and Dance. We, we did it at the Trocadero and it was great. We produced it ourselves. We raised money ourselves. We marketed the show. We did the whole show ourselves. We didn't know what we were doing. I, I was part of this little founding group and I realized I loved the organizing of the yeah. show more than dancing in it. I think I danced the first year and I had no desire to dance in the next year. And so I learned how to raise money and we had such a great cause, which is we are, we're raising money for something very personal to us. So I had no problem asking Tasty Baking Company or Absolute Vodka for, can you give us some money? How are you gonna say no to this? Exactly. So I learned how to ask for money. I learned how to sell. I learned how to work with a designer, um, sort of, you know, moment by moment, day by day, right. occasion by occasion. I learned, I was learning how to be a producer. And it, and it was great. I really did enjoy it. And man, that first year we did it, the Trocadero in town, we really, we did it in the middle of a, a terrible winter ice storm. It was like 30 degrees inside the Trocadero wow. and these dancers danced and did, did beautifully. And it's, it continues to this right. day, shut up and dance. I thought, I thought about still, maybe I want to go to grad school and maybe go to medical school. I was like, what do I really want to do with my life? And, and I realized through shut up and dance that I really wanted to work with artists. Yeah. And, and be that intermediary between the public and, and, right. and the artists. So, so you've said many times that the inspiration for Philly Fringe came from going to Edinburgh. Is that correct? Yes. So can you tell me about the first time you went to Edinburgh Fringe? Well, can I tell you one more story before I tell Absolutely. you that story? Because they're all connected. Just go. The, my very last year, we got a new director of Pennsylvania Ballet. Christopher Damboise came. Pennsylvania Ballet decided to make a change of director. Um, they made, did a search and they hired... There's this crazy hire, this young guy with a lot of sort of revolutionary ideas. He wanted to change ballet. And he really liked the idea of contemporary ballet. That was a, he was, he was a choreographer and he liked a lot of contemporary influences, but he really loved contemporary dance as, as the artistic director of a ballet company. He really wanted to infuse us with contemporary thinking and contemporary dance ideas. So here he comes his first year and he decides to take a piece of the year and bring in a, um, a cohort of not ballet choreographers, but contemporary dance choreographers. Uh, and these are artists that at the time I hated. Yeah. I was like, what in the hell is this shit? Like I know my pirouettes and my jumps and holding my spear and pointing my toe, putting my eyeliner on. This other stuff with the, you know, speaking on stage and, you know, not turning your legs in and looking ugly. That is decidedly not art, nor is it for me. And I want nothing to do with it. Um, but here I was, found myself in a room with this choreographer from San Francisco who knew nothing about ballet. <laughs> um, and he was going to make a piece on five of us to say that I was opposed to it was an understatement. Also, I knew, um, and I, I was one of the older dancers and I kind of was like, I'm going to do what I want to do at this point in my career. I'm not really into this. So I'm not really going to participate. I'm going to sit my ass down. I have a really good book and I'm going to read, I'm going to kind of listen and I'm going to kind of participate. I really, and also I was scared by it. I was, I didn't understand this form of art. It was very puzzling. And this, this man, his name was Joe Good, who I later got to know pretty well. Um, for the first week, gave us exercises and talked at length about his theory about making dance. And in where I was from, there was no, there was no talking to us. There was just, here's the step, learn it. Um, 
but he he we had us write down like stories of our childhood tell us tell us about and he had theory about the 1950s how it was so misogynistic and let's talk about that and all this i was disinterested and so we finally started getting up and doing movement movement combinations and i was like rolling my eyes like please this is so bad when is the day going to be over three or four days goes by and he's starting to really make us get up and do this stuff i really hated it um Finally, by the end of the week, he came over and said, you know, you're not really engaged, you're not participating, I need you to. And I was like, I just, yeah, I'm, I, to be honest with you, I'm really not into this and I don't get it and I'm really not, not, don't wanna be here. He's like, it's clear, but you know, you, you, you're here, you're being paid, you're gonna have to do this. Anyway, we had this like back and forth, back and forth. Finally, at the end of the day, he's like, in front of everybody, like, Nick, I need you to get up and do this, please. And he's getting pissed. Yeah. And I kind of had, had, had enough of it myself and I was like, fine. I got up and I did this material um, in, in that he had this crazy movement material and, and this, this little speech that came with it. And I did it with the intention of making fun of it and trying to get even tossed out of the room. Like, well, what's gonna happen to me? It's, no one cares about this, it's not really ballet. That was my goal to do that. So I, so I did this display to like be an asshole. I can't believe it, I was like, I was like a child. And I did it and he looked at me and said, awesome. Thank you. That was brilliant. That was amazing. What you just did, what Nick just did is what I've been waiting for all week. And I was like, what? And I realized in that moment, I had this like conversion experience, this conversion moment. I was like, oh, I get it. It is not about the technique. It's not about how high it can jump, how long and beautiful my leg can look. It's about um, what's, what I'm thinking about. And this, these other, all this myriad of other kinds of expression that I'm offering um, beyond the technique and the aesthetics. And in that moment, I was like, that was really awesome. And I see the world of contemporary thinking now in that moment. And I went from being the jerk in the room to being like, everybody, this is the best art ever, anyone could ever do. Just like that. Just like that. Wow. And then I was like, I love this. And I, I fell in love with this piece. And we did it, it was a piece called Seven Meditations on Murder and the Family. It was a totally different thing. And I think for all of us in the room, some of us kind of also really loved it and really saw the possibilities outside of the rigorous ballet technique that we were all steeped in and also enjoyed it very much. Some, some it never you know, bounced off and they never really got there. There were other choreographers working with the other you know, the 60 dancers. Um, and, and it was great for me to watch all these, all my colleagues doing these other kinds of contemporary dance, dance, other kinds of dances, seeing them in new ways, seeing their artistry, seeing them as different kinds of people and artists. I loved it. I was like, this is so cool. I'm seeing things in my colleagues I'd never seen before. That, that whole experience got me leaving the world of classical art and totally in the world of contemporary art and contemporary dance. I could see an interesting pattern here. So biology, tennis, ballet, these are all very historical, regimented, traditional things. So would you say that this sort of revelation opened your eyes to just overall more sort of contemporary and against the grain type thinking? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm a person who always likes to see what people are not doing um, and to see the possibility of, of new things, of um, progressive things. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that characterizes me. Um, and, and, and yeah, I have to say all these years later, I haven't been in the ballet in a long time, but I find that I'm, um, 
have an appreciation for it more and more now, all these years. In fact, I've been teaching ballet class to my staff and to don't, anybody who will take a ballet class from me, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm teaching. And I guess I understand the basis for it. It is the basis for so many things, having this classical technique as something to depart from, to, right. to compare in comparison with. But I'm a, definitely a type B guy. Like I, I'm, I'm not organized at all. But having to study a, a technique like dance, like ballet and like tennis and like in a language, um, you have to have a rigorous side to you to, to understand all the rules. Anyway. So this opened your eyes to the contemporary world. <laughs> yeah. In fact, in that moment, I ditched classical. I'm like, I now hate ballet. Wow. Um, I just saw the, the whole world of possibilities and the impossibility of trying to learn ballet, which is impossible, especially so late. Um, I sort of just left it, just just walked away from it, and um, and really in, into that world of of um, the contemporary realm, the modern the modern art realm. Yeah. So, did you start looking for just other contemporary expressions? To- yes, exactly. So I, I quit dancing with the the idea that I wanted to become a producer, but I knew that the kind of art that I really loved and respected was contemporary art. And I was very much insulated from the Philadelphia world because we were down there on South Broad Street in the ballet center, and we were really having very little interaction with anybody outside of the ballet dance community. And I quit, and I wanted to dive in to the local scene to see what other kinds of artists there were in the contemporary scene. And lo and behold, this is again sort of the good, the good fortune I had, there was this enormous underculture, I guess we could, I could call it, of um, really interesting contemporary artists here in Philadelphia uh, doing all kinds of crazy things, poetry and performance and music and theater and dance. That was, I call it underculture because it was they were performing in like little bars and storerooms of, literally there was a, some restaurant that let this <laughs> Paul Turner do his monthly poetry drag readings in their third floor storeroom, literally like with napkins and straws and stuff. And he would set up some chairs in the middle of that and do his like his awesome poetry. Um, And so it was like word of mouth. There's no flyers. And we just found these things. And I was going to these things as this novice producer, this wannabe producer and, and seeing these places that were stuffed with people or they would get a dance studio and they would hold these shows and like sell beers and popcorn. And it was all underground. And I I started meeting people and seeing this, um, seeing this art, these great artists, all this passion. And also as a young producer, I saw that there was a potential market potential because they were filled with people. Right. Knowing that I wanted to be a, a producer and learning from Shut Up and Dance, how to organize a show. And I started to hold a few events, do a few shows, um, again, underground. Then when I met this artist named Eric Schofer, who wanted a producer to take him to Edinburgh um, to do his show at a festival, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, um, during that process, we got talking, started talking about the idea of a festival for Philadelphia. Um, So we went to Edinburgh and we spent, I don't know, two, three weeks there. I got a little grant from the state, I remember, called it Dancers in Career Transition. Oh. I met everybody I could, all the producers there, the organizers, and talked to them and um, really fell in love with this idea of this is the vehicle. This festival is a way to take all that energy in a city of neighborhoods like Philadelphia. Edinburgh is also a great city of neighborhoods. Take all that energy and bring it back to Philadelphia and use that as a vehicle for getting 
all this great art, all these interested people. So was it while you were over there that you decided to do it in Philly? We, even before we left, we had okay, this so idea. You knew. You we, knew. we had this idea to maybe this working idea. The first year, we'd spent a year planning. My, my life's work was this very first festival. You know, I spent 20 hours a day on making this thing with, with a group of great people, not just me. And um, we had this beautiful, uh, it was Friday afternoon, and it was the big weekend. And we had this opening event planned um, right there in Old City. And it was about three o'clock and we we're getting ready, but I'm very nervous. I look up the street and this like armada of street pavers is approaching to strip the street, closing the street. They started setting up horses because we didn't know. We didn't talk to the city about right, this. Yeah. And to um, take the weekend and repave the streets in Old City. <laughs> I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. But there they come. It's three o'clock. The first show is at like 5.30. So um, the time, I mentioned my friend Joseph Torsella, who of course was a major director in high school, wanted to become a director, uh, you know, a major theater. He probably would have been a fantastic theater director. He probably can do anything he wants. Um, instead, he went into politics. And he ended, up, he ended up working for the mayor, Mayor Rendell. This was during Rendell's administration, the mayor. And I called up Joe and was like, and he was working in the city government can you call the streets department? Can you, can you help me? This is a disaster. And somehow he got it all the managing director and blah, blah, blah at like four o'clock on Friday and they stopped it. What? They did. He got this to happen and they just parked the stuff on the side and let this festival happen. Wow. And this was the very, very first one. The very, very first one. Opening night. Opening. Again, these opening night events opening keep day. happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I can tell you. Some year, I remember telling everybody, something terrible is going to happen. It has to. Without it, we wouldn't have a good festival. So, you have the first festival. I imagine after that, it goes well? It does. Again, dumb luck. Why? Because, so here we, here we are, a bunch of, I mean, we, what we were, were a bunch of um, enterprising, passionate people about the arts sitting on a great idea that we had no idea how to how to blossom and grow um at the time in the city's history there were a couple of things one the, there was no cultural life in the city not very this is like this is 1995 96 97. um there was the ballet there was the opera there was something called the drama guild there was a, a couple of startup theater companies the wilma theater and the arden theater they were just getting going and all the bars and restaurants all six of them Closed at 930. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, sure, McGlinchey, we used to go to McGlinchey's. That's yeah. an institution. That was there, thank oh, God. There was a couple of dive bars, but you couldn't get a burger in this town on a Thursday night at 10 o'clock anywhere. <laughs> so there, that's one thing about the cultural life. The other thing about culture itself was that um, besides those big sort of legacy institutions and the museum and the orchestra, there was not this sort of contemporary life, contemporary cultural life anywhere. But there were smart people like at foundations and some in the city government and some at some big corporations who knew like, hell man, our downtown, our city life is kind of meh, yeah. like kind of sluggish. So here we came along with this crazy idea around this big festival idea. And um, we, we got noticed by some businesses and, and some foundations and the William Penn Foundation in particular and the Independence Foundation. Um, they knew there were these artists out there that, that had something to say. They knew um, that they should get support. And they knew there was a public interested. But there wasn't that middleman. There wasn't that, that 
entity that would um, bring them both together, the audiences and the art. And so here we come um, out of nowhere with this idea to be that guy, to be that presenter. And so, and given there was nothing, it was a frontier, we got support. The Independence Foundation, I think, gave us a $30,000 grant. And we were just a bunch of people with no track record and really didn't know what we were doing, just this good idea. And the William Penn Foundation also said, here's money. And also said like, okay, you clearly have no idea what you're doing. Here's some technical help. Here's some consultants, yeah. et cetera. So we, we were just lucky. Came, like today, if we try to start this, we're a very sophisticated and much more mature place in terms of the culture here. There's cultural life everywhere you look yeah. and really smart people doing it. Um, there's not that need now, but 23 years ago there, there was. So at this point, you know, in and around that first year of the five-day festival, maybe right after it, is this something that you considered what you could make a career out of? During that first year, I didn't know. I, I, um, but after the first year, well, first of all, we sold every ticket we ever imagined. I, I love to tell a story about the sellouts we had, which were audiences of 14 people, which were wild sellouts. <laughs> we had 14 people. Pack um, the house. Yeah. Thaddeus Phillips did a show in an alley, in Quarry Street Alley. It was a Shakespeare with Barbie dolls in a kiddie pool. We sent up 14 little misfit chairs and we sold it out. And um, we had other bigger shows and we, people came out of the woodwork to see this thing. There were, there was a pent up demand. So again, we realized pretty quickly, we had stumbled upon something people were really wanted. So that was great. The arrows were up, pointing up and we had just this rosy cheeked optimism about it. Um, and yeah, and it's something that I started that I could control, that I wasn't, didn't have a boss, and I liked all those things. Yeah. Um, young, my girlfriend then, soon to be wife, <laughs> she was still dancing, I met my wife. Also, Christopher D'Amboise, this other thing, Christopher D'Amboise came, he also brought with him my wife. Oh awesome. my gosh. Yeah, that's not a great thing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but we were living off like her salary of $20,000 a year, um, and, uh, it was, it was hard, but we made it work and, but yeah, I was really passionate about it. I still am. Thinking back to those initial first festivals, is there a particular show that comes to mind as the most memorable? We've brought audiences along for many years and on, on the, on the scale of experimentation and it sort of instinctively or viscerally knew that there are some things we're not ready for yet. Things are built, shows are built upon things. Like if you like this, okay, now you're ready for this one. Um, on the provocation scale. And a few times we took, we went, we went too far ahead. And <laughs> this was a couple of times. Um, one is the New York City Players, a director named Richard Maxwell. And he uses actors that are not actors. Some, some are real actors and some are just guys he found off the streets, like a bus driver, notoriously. He hired and said, I'm gonna pay you 500 bucks a week to be in a play. The guy had never seen a play. And so you get these people on stage who deliver text terribly, like, uh, and he loved that um, because he would shape them. He would say, your intonation, just at the end of that line, just scream the word stop or scream the word mother. And they would just do it because they didn't know anything about acting. And so what you got was this crazy theater that um, what you realized, it's not about the words, it's about the intonation. And you, you learned about the nature of communication outside of the words. I thought it was fascinating, really interesting. We did it and people hated it and walked out and they were like, what in the hell is going on here? And, um, and I remember I literally like sweating bullets and like feeling just like I wanted to throw myself off the bridge. Um, 
And, and I remember being distraught after that after that show, show show run got terrible reviews and everything. Meanwhile, New York, he was doing pretty well in terms of the reviews. A good friend of mine at the time, a former board member, also saw it and said, "What in the hell is that? That was terrible. That, I I thought that was terrible too, Nick." He said to me, "But I trust you, and you really think this is great. Let me make a suggestion. Bring it back. Try it again." And I was like, "That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard." Why did I do that? And he was like, "Cause I believe in you. You should try it." And I was like, "You know what? I'm gonna do it." Yeah. I brought it back the next year, and people loved it. No, they what? just weren't ready. We well, it, it's not only that. It's also our. It's our capacity. We didn't. I didn't have the language yet to be able to set the context for it. The thing I just described to you, um, I described better at the time, and um, we had more materials. We're able to we're able to have better um, uh, ancillary materials and um, some talks with with people, better better communication, so maybe some emails that describe the work in a different way, and also time to sort of gestate this work um, and for new audiences to find this work, this experimental work. And we brought it back next year, and it was a big success with another work. But it just takes time for people to to find it to. Um, Sort of uh, metabolize it and understand it. It takes that time for me too. Fast forward a couple of more years. A French artist who I love, one of my favorites. His name is Jean Bell, and we brought a big show called "The Show Must Go On." And this was not a. We did the New York City Players in a little theater. You know, the, the risk was low. This was a big risk. This was the um, the Kimmel Center. Wow. We rented the the Perlman Theater. It was a big show. We paid a lot of money for this artist to come here, and this show. Is a beautiful show, and it's called the Show Must Go On. It's um, a series of eighteen pop songs. That's all it is, one after the, after the other. A, a, a technician sits at the front of the stage, puts on a, a CD at the time, and presses play. And the and the dancers, um, again, we cast some dancers and some non-dancers, do simply whatever the text of the song says to do. David Bowie's "Let's Dance." They just stood in the stage, and when David Bowie said "Let's Dance," they danced. Um, Killing Me Softly, Roberta Flack, Killing Me Softly. When those words came on, Killing Me Softly, they just slowly died. It was a death scene. Um, La Vie en Rose, My Life in Red. The dancers sat on the edge of the stage and the theater, the whole theater was bathed in this beautiful red light. And we just all sat in the room and watched the theater go red. <laughs> that's what we did each, well, that's what they did. That's the work. And so the, the very first song is the Beatles, Here Comes the Sun. All that happens is for two and a half minutes is the light comes up on the stage. So with this, we sold all the tickets. We had a big, you know, 600 people. This show starts with the lights coming on to the Beatles music and nothing happening. Murmur, murmurs in the house. And the dancers walked out on stage and um, I'll be watching you, Sting. Mm -hmm. They just stared at the audience. That was the first. <laughs> oh man. And I heard a few seats flip. Yep. I heard people like, God damn, you know, like walking out, like, what the fuck? <laughs> I heard those. And then I heard a, a few people go like, this is not art. A few people get angry. You know, they just paid 50, you know, $45, whatever. Um, and people yelling. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh shit, this risk, you know, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And, and, but not all the room, just a few angry folks. The rest of the people were with it. But I didn't know that okay. until about midway through the piece. Um, the laughs started coming. Meanwhile, I was in the back like sweating. Uh, I was like, oh my God, 
I'm going to lose my job. This is it. Yeah. And, um, and by the end of the end of the thing, there was dancing in the aisles. People had literally, I think the audience was like waiting, like, okay, I hear the naysayers. Maybe I agree with them. This is suck. This is suck. But wait a minute. This is actually really cool. And it went from the needle went from, Oh, I hate it to no, it's awesome. Like right in, in the, the course of the in one the show, course of that one show. It was right in the knife edge. Wow. It, the show is really beautiful. Um, in fact, my favorite moment is that technician who puts the music on in the middle of the show, this technician with his, you know, black shirt, black t-shirt, you know, his beard and his like, you know, key, keychain. He puts on private dancer, song Tina, Tina Turner's private dancer. He walks in the middle of the stage and he starts dancing, this technician. As in the, and then he, then he goes back to the console. He turns the music up really loud and he puts a spotlight on for himself. And he goes back and he just dances like crazily, <laughs> private dancer. Yeah. It's awesome. And, and so this choreographer, I love him because he said, um, it's about the democratization. Normally when you go to the Kimmel Center, how it works is you pay your money, you sit in the dark and the person up on stage is gonna blow your mind somehow. Play music like a virtuoso, virtuosic uh, musician or a dancer or an actor. That's the typical transaction. We're going to blow that out of the water. Why does that? Let's let's examine that transaction. We're all the same people. We're all going to be in this space together, and enjoy this this time together, and and sort of upend that idea of um, the hierarchy yeah. of art of art making. And it's about the concepts, about the ideas, and and people loved it. Thankfully. So fast forward a little bit to getting the building. Recently, Fringe Arts rebranded to Fringe Arts mm -hmm. and actually got a permanent year-long building. At what point was it time to actually have a dedicated space? Well, what happened was that the condo boom hit our city, like many cities in the U.S., and we were, our operation was temporary. Or we would spring up before the festival with some kind of box office and some kind of social space, some kind of cabaret space that we love. Very, very essential for a good festival. But in the early days when old city was um empty warehouse after empty warehouse you know this people don't know that and there was this big uh, this big giant restaurant um supply business that went out of business in 1996 and there were these giant warehouses and the woman who owned them all became a great woman who became a friend of the festival a friend of mine to this day um she handed me this key ring this giant key ring with 128 i counted them 128 keys and basically said you seem like a nice young man take care of my buildings and here you go, use them. And so the first three or four years, so this is 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, we're using these great buildings in Old City. And then you remember, you don't remember maybe, 2002, 2003, everything started to become a condo and people wanted to live, move to the city. And so she was like, I'll take my key ring back, thank you. And you're now out and I totally understood that. And um, so we began to move around by neighborhood and we would surface in, this neighborhood now or this neighborhood, but more and more we were surfacing like way the hell out because we were getting squeezed out by all the development. So we knew even back then we need a permanent, this institution, this festival deserves its own space. We can not spend all that energy and money trying to find a darn space every year. Also, we were building audiences like mad for this brand of contemporary experimental work. And um, we thought, well, if they like it once a year, they're going to love it all year. Yeah. <laughs> and so for those two reasons, we began looking for a home. Of course, then 2006, shit hit the fan. Yeah. 
a financial crisis. Um, but that was a great opportunity for us because all those builders building all those condos all went bankrupt. So there was, there was a bunch of empty warehouses in the city and we rented one for next to nothing. Um, and so we had this great space, this big old warehouse that we had our offices in. And we started this, we started, built a little DIY theater, like a little hundred seat theater that literally was out of shit we had in the storeroom. And we began to do shows outside of the, the festival time and to work with artists year round. And in fact, I came to the board, my board to say, we're ready for a building. And the board hired a consultant who came back and said, you're not ready for a building. <laughs> To which you said, I had no choice but to say, damn, all right, fine. It was probably the right move. And instead we, we got this warehouse and made our little theater and we learned what it's like to live with artists and to work with artists. It was a nice little prototype. It was, it was the right move. The board was right. And finally, yeah, we started getting serious around 11 and 12 and we found this great site um, here on Delaware Avenue. So this whole time, did you have the vision? Because this place is more than just a theater, more than just offices. You know, you've got the full restaurant, you've got the beer garden. Was that vision for this, you know, whole complex place that can really serve pretty much anybody year round a part of the whole plan? The vision for this building is rooted in one thing, and that is a beer garden. Um, and that is in what I saw when I went to Edinburgh. This, this is true. In 1996, when we were in Edinburgh, what the, when you get off the plane in Edinburgh during festival time, you know, there's like, there's a, there's a bar on the tarmac just about there's, there's drinking and partying. It, you're there for a vacation. Everybody's there to vacation. Why? For culture. They come to Edinburgh on vacation. These, these European, everybody from around the world, um, not to sit in the beach, but to go to shows. It's enormously social. So you, yeah, you have fun. You see a juggler, you'll see some crazy Bulgarian garage band but you're also gonna have a beer and you're gonna be drinking great Scottish whiskey and you're gonna hang out and have coffee with some crazy artist you're yeah. gonna meet. Um, that, that was the, by far the, the thing I was struck by, the social context for that arts festival. So knowing fast forward many years to designing our space, being enormously social was what we wanted. So, and we also, we wanted to make sure we had outdoor space. That's the other thing we learned from all the years of doing festivals is when we have, we gathered at the end of the night together, what people wanted to do was hang out outside and drink and smoke and talk. And so we were sure that we needed outdoor space, a beer garden, which now are all the rage. So five years in, has the building lived up to that vision that you had of the Edinburgh festival? It has and it hasn't. The restaurant part is going beautifully more than we had hoped. The business has become an important and large part of our revenue base. Um, we, we are a landlord to the business and we share revenue, which has been terrific, especially as the neighborhood around us is growing. That's going great. What we didn't anticipate is I mentioned that, well, if people love the work during the festival, they're gonna love it year round. Well, in fact, they're not coming here. There's less than 20% of festival audiences come here outside of festival time. Interesting. And I think people think of the fringe like the Nutcracker, like, oh, it's, it's fringe time. Let's see some crazy show. And now, okay, that's good. Yeah. I'm done. And, and so we're, we're sort of rebuilding the year round programming. But I, I love this. I, I think about us becoming an institution. I finally, last year, I realized something. I was at a coffee shop and I met some person, this young woman who's maybe, I don't know, 26, 27 years old. I told her what I did. I was talking to her and she started laughing and she was like, it was already on fringe time last year. And she said, it's so funny, you know, I live in South Philly and I'm going to sleep around 11, 30, 12 at night. 
and I hear two people outside my window having a fight. And the first thing I thought of was, that's a fringe show, I bet. <laughs> and I'm realizing this person who, you now we're 22 years old, she probably doesn't know a time when there wasn't the fringe right. festival. Oh, absolutely. Right? And, she's, and so, <laughs> if we can claim that kind of, you know, street level activity, yeah. that's fringe festival, that's, <laughs> that's penetration. You know, that's, yeah. we, we've, uh, we've become an institution. We did, in the first couple of years here, we did like 200 plus nights, a lot of one-offs in this building. You know, a show from Philly followed by a cool show from Japan, followed by this other show from San Francisco, followed by a great local music. It was too much. We were trying to get super excited. You've got to come see this. Oh, and then you've got to come see this. And then on Saturday, there's this. And we were just, it was too, it was too much. And so, um, so our attendance wasn't what we thought it was going to be in terms of the year-round programming. So we sort of rebuilt that. And we're doing it, we're collecting, collective, we're batching the program in by genre, like a contemporary circus festival or a comedy platform or a platform for this kind of incubator for this great wave of next great theater talent in Philadelphia. Um, we can organize them and sell them all at once instead of one-offs. And that's the new vision for the couple of years. What, do you, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? Hmm. Well, this city's developing. Boy, what a great time it is in Philadelphia. There's the development, the, all this action and activity. I worry about gentrification, things like that, and what's that, what that's going to spoil the artist community. There's a great thing here now for artists because it's relatively affordable, although right in the brink of it, um, and there's space. And those are the two important things, having a rich artist community. We learn the lessons of New York City where it's impossible to be an artist there. We don't want that to happen in Philadelphia. And so right in this precipice, I hope that we, we think about creative people and their role and their very important role in the niche and, and the, um, in the ecology of a place like Philadelphia at this, at this time. So yeah, I mean, that's always about, about the life of the city relative to artists. Yeah. On the flip side, what's the most encouraging thing you see in Philadelphia today? Well, I would say the talent. There's this, um, I've been doing this now for you know, 25 years in Philly. Um, this really exciting young group of makers here, of programmers, of thinkers, of writers, of makers, of creative people in design on the stage, off the stage. Um, like I've not seen it, I'm really impressed by this young group. I've been going to a lot of fringe shows yeah. in the middle of the festival here. And I'm really pretty blown away by all this talent that's made Philadelphia, we're lucky, that's made a home here. Um, and that's going to be working here. And we're lucky because we get to present all these fantastic artists. So I'm really psyched about that and encouraged by that. Uh, so what would you say is a common misconception about you? Mm. Well, um, probably I'm this, you know, this guy maybe who loves this experiment, this, you know, feet experimental performance. Um, and I do. But I'm also just this guy who likes Beltman Frisbee. And uh, I'm like, I'm, I, I would say I'm a regular guy. And I, and I think, I think, I think I, I think that's good that um, I am a regular guy. I like to watch the Eagles and sit around with my kids and um, watch silly TV. Um, but I'm also a guy who really likes really um, interesting and provocative performance work. And so if I'm a regular guy who likes that, well, there's got to be other regular guys who are going to like it too. And I can talk to you about it because we can talk football first and then we can talk about experimental Bulgarian performance making. <laughs> I think that that's going to be valuable for a lot of people because so I've been I've been to quite a few fringe shows at the festivals and I remember particularly I was at a lot of them in I think it was 2011 um, 
when Traces was here and I saw like a puppet show and like all these, and I was just like, this is, this is awesome. I remember telling people about it. And that was actually through an acting class, I think at Temple. Um, but you know, it just opened my eyes to it. And I, and I remember telling people about it, be like, you got to see these, like there's these crazy shows. And there was this sort of error in their response of, oh, I'm not one of those people that likes the crazy stuff. You know what I mean? And, and I, so I think it's valuable. And if anybody listening feels that way, give it a shot maybe. <laughs> but I also will say, you know, and, and that's true. And um, I also like to say that we do do some, I will, I will own that, that some of the things we do are outrageous. Yeah, yeah. And it's not going to be for everybody. And that's okay too. But um, the last thing I want to do is, you know, I think it's important that part of our brand identity is that we will bring the most bold experiments you can imagine that humankind can imagine. Damn it. Well, this is a place for that. Yeah. There is a broad amount of things. I mean, some shows are just, you know, are great for families, but a lot of it is like, this is a, you know, we're putting a flag down here for like really serious, crazy shit. And I love it. I love that too. I love all of it. So last thing, totally out of left field. I've, I've read that you are deathly afraid of tsunamis. <laughs> Yes, I Why? am. <laughs> I had a fucking vacation just about ruined. I, you know, I love to go to Charleston. Well, there's a great festival down there, the Spoleto Festival. And I, my kids were young. We used to go down there and, and, uh, and stay in this little town outside of Charleston on the beach. And we had this beautiful house on the beach. And it was literally on the beach. And the, and the very front room's all windows. Yeah. And, um, and there I was, like, just sort of looking at the ocean, waiting for the tsunami. Kids, get ready to run. I just like, I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I think that, you know, back when the Aceh tsunami happened, it just like seared in my brain. And now I just look at the vast ocean and just waiting for that, that moment where it's going to happen. Do you think uh, <laughs> there's any irony to the fact that you're now in the high pressure water system building? <laughs> you know, it's funny. We were about to do the, begin the renovation here, the demolition here. This is an old building built in 19, 1903. Yeah. There was this piston that was almost 30 feet tall. It was like four feet wide, this steel piston. And its purpose, I was told, was to prevent um, a big surge of water from the river. This giant piston would, would apply pressure um, on, on the river water to keep the pumps from blowing up. This giant monolithic thing, it's crazy. They sold it for um, steel, the steel value. But when they were about to get rid of it, I was like, well, what's going to happen? When they cut this thing, is it going to be like this geyser yeah. of water? And like, don't worry, that valve is closed at the river. I'm like, are you telling me this valve that was closed in 1954, you're going to cut this thing open and it's not going to be this giant, like, who's going to tell yeah. me that for sure? <laughs> yeah. And they were like, come on. it's not." And I was like, I'm leaving. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but it's really just like a like a three-inch cement cap over that thing. Yeah. Oh my God, now I'm panicking. Like, now I can't sleep. Thanks a lot, Kevin. This episode was released during the 2018 Philly Fringe Festival, which runs until September 23rd. So for more on Nick, Fringe Arts, and to check out what shows remain, you can head to podphillywho.com forward slash fringe. Be sure to subscribe and rate the show if you're on Apple Podcasts and follow at podphillywho on Instagram and Twitter to join the discussion and get sneak previews. Music by Lee Rosevere, podcast art by Lauren Carhart. Special thanks to Max Tuttleman and to Nick for being on the show. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. I'll see you next week.